Let me read for us our passage. Therefore, Paul says, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Perhaps you saw the news this week about Spencer Sleon. He was a uh, 22-year-old rapper from Harlem. He's in the news this week for having a best friend. His best friend is a 81-year-old Jewish grandmother from Florida named Rosa Gutman. They met each other uh, playing the app Words uh, with Friends. So it shouldn't be surprising that they became friends, I guess. But they were randomly paired. They began texting, messaging back and forth in the app and a few months later declared that each other were each other's best friends. One of them told one of their own friends, Spencer told one of his friends up in Harlem who had connections to a journalist who encouraged Spencer to go down and meet his best friend. Spencer traveled down to New York to meet his best friend for the first time, which is a statement that just lets you know about our culture right now. He went to meet his friend for the very first time. Anyway, as I mentioned, they're in the news because Spencer and Rosa shouldn't be friends by any fleshly standard. Spencer, as I said, is 22 years old. He's an African-American rapper from Harlem whose street name, by the way, is Half Empty. (laughs) Rosa, on the other hand, 81-year-old Jewish grandmother, lives in Florida. Her street name, when the reporter asked her, is Rosie. Rosa, Rosie. She spells it with a Z, though, so it gives it that that flair. Now, how do you size up another person? How do you make a determination of what kind of person someone else is? I mean, just at the most basic level, there are lots of people in our church. There's lots of people in our Bible studies. There's lots of people at your work, in your neighborhood, in our country, in our world. How do you decide who you're going to have a conversation with? How do you decide who you can get along with? How do you decide who you're going to be friends with? How do you make a determination of what kind of person somebody else is? On what basis do you do that? In other words, what's the most important thing to know about somebody as you make an estimation of what kind of person they are? I mentioned this last week, but because of the passage I've been thinking about this week, when I first moved here from California, I'd lived in L.A. for 10 years, and a question that everybody asks, you know, in my mind, there's not a lot of differences between California and and D.C., but everybody always asks, it's just a polite question, but what's the biggest change? What's the biggest difference being out here? And Dieter and I, I remember reflecting on it. it. It honestly was that in California, you kind of sized people up based upon their appearance, what their hair looked like, what kind of car they drove, how they, they dressed. That's how you sized someone up. And out here, we noticed right away that that was not what was important, that you hear the most common question somebody asked is, what is your job? <laughs> What's your job title? Who do you work for? Who do you report to? And that's how you size someone up. In the Jewish world, it was very important to make an estimation about somebody. In the Jewish world, everything was divided between Jew and Gentile, clean and unclean, kosher and and tainted. The whole world was structured that way. You know, we think of our own culture as somewhat segregated, but uh, not compared to the world Paul lived in. Everything was divided in Jerusalem. Everything was divided in Israel. They had, if you've been to Israel, in some sense, recently, it's still that way today. You know, there's two sinks in the kitchen. There's two sets of silverware. There's two dining rooms in many places. There's two elevators in many of the, the hotels, one for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. There's two everything. And that's 
ingrains in your minds that some things are clean, some things are not clean. Even a buffet, here's the food for the Jews and here's the food for everybody else. There would be Jewish marketplaces in Paul's lifetime where you could only eat food bought from the right marketplace. If you didn't know what marketplace it was from, you couldn't eat it because it might be unclean. That was the way their worldview was. A person was either clean or unclean. Hairstyles demonstrated whether or not you were Jew or Gentile. Your clothes demonstrated it. Your food demonstrated it. The days of the week demonstrated it. And this was all by God's design. God designed Israel to be separate from the nations around them so that they could stay isolated to produce the Messiah. That was the goal. And that was Paul's world. In some sense, our world is, is similar. We make assessments about people. Are they in or out? Can we be friends or foes with them? There was somebody at the Christmas concert last night who asked for help finding childcare and uh, taking his kids to childcare. And I said, sure, just take off your Eagles hat and I'll show you right where it is. <laughs> yeah, I don't even like football, but you got to have some rules. <laughs> you know, can you be friends with a Democrat? Or could you be friends with a Republican? Could you be friends with somebody on the other side of the political aisle? I got to have lunch this week with a member of Congress. He's been in Congress for a long time, and he told me that one of the biggest changes, I asked him what's one of the biggest changes you've seen in your, you know, 20 plus years in the capital area, and he said, you know, back in the 90s, congressmen were friends with each other, and we were friends with people on the other side of the political aisle and that if, if I had a rough primary back at home and I needed to travel with my wife back home, I could leave my kids with one of my friends, even if they were a Democrat. They could, I could leave my kids with them and they'd care for my kids while I was back home for my primary and I would do the same for them. And, and now it's not that way. You, don't, you barely know people in your own party, much less people in the other party. There's just such that change. It's become ingrained in our thought process. You size somebody up based on how they voted or what party they're in or if they like the Redskins or the Cowboys, alas. We figured out a way to be friends, I suppose. Paul says here there's only one division that matters. You want to figure out how to make an assessment about somebody? There's only one way to do it. Are they in Christ or are they out of Christ? And that's it. That's what he means in verse 16 where he says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Paul says, I'm done making assessments about people by their appearance. I'm done making assessments about people by how they dress, by where they work, <laughs> to use the vernacular, by how they voted or what sports teams they like. I'm done with that, he says. There's only one criteria that matters. Do they know Christ? As I mentioned, this was a foundational change for Paul, himself a Pharisee. Paul would have fastidiously kept the Jewish laws. He knew them. They were important to him. That's what his worldview was built around. It was for every Jew, but even more so for a Pharisee. Every single noun in their world was either clean or unclean, able to touch or not able to touch, able to be friends with or not able to be friends with. Everything fit into one of those two categories. And that, as I mentioned, was by God's design so that the Jews would be separated. And in many ways, the Old Testament was fulfilled in Christ, but Understand this, in many other ways, the Old Testament was fulfilled more in the Great Commission. 
Israel was isolated so that Jesus would come. Now Jesus has come and now he tells the disciples, go from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. Make disciples of all nations. In other words, get out of town. Go make disciples of Christ from somebody who is from Samaria, if you can imagine. From someone on the other side of the political aisle. If you're Anisimus, go make a disciple of Philemon. Go, if you're a slave, make a disciple of your owner. If you're poor, make a disciple of a rich man. If you're rich, make a disciple of a, a poor man. The Jew-Gentile barrier is broken down, in other words. Where Paul the Pharisee could have a relationship with the centurion. Or a Roman member of the upper class. That was the new world order for Paul. There is no longer any separation according to the flesh. And he says why in the middle of verse 16? Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Paul was a contemporary with Jesus. And there's no record of him meeting Jesus, but it seems likely enough. And at the very least, he was obviously aware of Christ and their worlds overlapped. And he's, giving, he's being very intimate with himself right here. He's, he's opening up his heart and letting you know what he was like back then. That he knew of Christ back before he was a believer. And he made assessments about Christ according to the flesh. And they were so wrong. I mean, what would Paul's assessment of Jesus have been like? He doesn't give you many details of it here. He just lets you know that he had made an assessment of Christ according to the flesh. Imagine what he would have viewed Christ like back those so many years ago. First of all, Jesus was Jewish, but he didn't keep the Jewish laws the way Paul thought he should. He and his disciples would walk across the, the grain on a Saturday, a flagrant violation of the Mosaic Code. They would pluck grain and, and eat it. Jesus, in one occasion, spit into mud, spit into dirt and made mud on the Sabbath, another clear violation of the Sabbath laws. He healed on the Sabbath, which he ought not to have done according to fleshly standards. He spent time with sinners and tax collectors and drunkards and, and gluttons. He eschewed the upper echelons of Jewish society. He stayed away from them. How would Paul perceive this i mean jesus was out of place out of line at the very least he was a betrayer of his people judging by those that he hung around moreover the gentiles didn't even like christ he was arrested as a traitor for ostensibly encouraging people to revolt against Rome. That's what he was condemned for anyway. He was sentenced to death. The governor wanted to release him, but turned him over to a popular vote. Both Jews and Gentiles together wanted a, a treasonous usurper released instead, a murderous insurrectionist. They wanted Barabbas. They valued him over Jesus. In Paul's estimation, Jesus was ill-begotten, ill-timed, a rabble-rouser, nothing but trouble for the Jews who are God's people, nothing but trouble for the Gentiles who are trying to give the Jews some, some semblance of national identity. Jesus would have wrecked all of that. He went in the temple turning over the tables. He rebuked the Pharisees. He had no place in Jewish society. He died poor, single, naked, exposed, nothing to pass down to a family, which is fine because he didn't have any offspring anyway. Jesus, if anything, was to be pitied. That was Paul's assessment of him. On a good day, Paul might have sympathy for Christ. On a bad day, Paul might have joined in in executing him and wanting 
Jesus' own followers executed. In fact, we know that's what Paul did. When Paul was making assessments about Christ from the flesh, he wanted those who followed Jesus put to death. That's how Paul viewed Christ. And now he's going to use this argument from the greater to the lesser. If Paul viewed Jesus that way, Jesus, the most perfect person who's ever lived, Paul assessed Jesus according to flesh and found him worthless. How wrong was he? Greater to the lesser. If you can mess up your assessment of Christ by judging him by wrong standards, how much more are you going to botch assessments of other people? If you wrongly esteem the most sinless person who's ever lived, how do you think you can make any kind of suitable assessment of anybody else based on those same standards? In other words, if you mess up Jesus, you're obviously going to misappraise everybody else. Jesus himself executed like a common criminal in a humiliating way. Jesus' last words, not really his last words, but in his last week saying, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross and die like me too. I mean, the whole thing's ridiculous. And Paul says, I used to assess him that way, but no longer. By the way, that's how the world still assesses Christ. You get two views of Christ in the world. Some view him as divisive, naive, narrow-minded, repressive, homophobic, religious zealot. Others view Christ by cleaning him up and giving him curly hair and rosy cheeks and, you know, somebody straight out of central casting for a Hallmark special. Somebody would never say something controversial or divisive. And those are people trying to fit Jesus into worldly standards. And Paul says, I'm, from now on, I'm not doing that anymore. Beginning with his conversion, of course. And this way, at the end of verse 17, I know him that way no longer. He's no longer going to judge people by the fleshly California, what kind of car do you drive standards or by the the DC, what kind of job do you have kind of questions or by the Jerusalem, how fastidious are you you with the law kind of mindset. Because he was horribly, horribly wrong about Christ, he's now determined to assess everybody in the world just based on the simple standards. Are they in Christ or are they out of Christ? It's black or white, on or off, near or far. Are they in Christ or are out of Christ. No, no shades of gray here, no degrees of separation. You're either in or out. No more human standards, only God's standard, and that's being in Christ. And that's the phrase in verses 14 and 15. One died for all back in verse 14. Verse 15, he died for all so that those who are in him would die and rise again on their behalf. Then verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, that's the phrase is bracketing this, in Christ, in Christ. In the middle of this, Paul says, I'm only going to assess people based on that point. Let me put it to you this way. Paul realizes there are only two types of people. There's only two kinds of people. He's reformed his worldview. He's put on his bifocals. He's put on his glasses where he only sees two colors. Black, white. Following Christ, out of Christ. That's it. And he will assess people that way from now on. The two kinds of people, of course, are in Adam are in Christ. And that phrase in Adam, it's not expressly here, but it's implied with the language of in Christ. It's said expressly in 1 Corinthians 15 that everyone who's in Christ or in Adam died with Adam. It's paired with being in Christ, of course. Those are the two camps, being in Adam or in Christ. Now, everybody is born in Adam. Adam is our father. We're all in Adam. The very concept of being in Christ implies that there's a concept of being outside of Christ, doesn't it? If you're in Christ and that's exclusive, then those who are not in Christ are 
outside of him. But don't picture those who are outside of Christ as being in some kind of neutral zone or, or no man's land where they're in themselves or they're in charge of themselves. No, if you're not in Christ, then you are in Adam. That's the two choices here. There's no neutrality. There's no neutral zone. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And you can't have two more different heads. You can't be in two more different people. Let me show you the contrast. If a person's in Adam, they are dead because of Adam's death. But if they're in Christ, they have a life in Christ's death. When Adam sinned, he brought the world into sin. He died spiritually. That's what God told him. If you sin, the day you sin, you will die. And it's not talking about Adam's physical death. It's talking about Adam's spiritual death. God told Adam not to eat the fruit. Adam ate the fruit. Sin entered the world. Death was not part of the original operating standards in the garden. There was no death in the garden. There was no suffering in the garden. There was no sin in the garden. Adam brings sin into the garden and with it comes death. And that death gets passed along to all those who are in Adam. Scripture makes it very clear that if you are a human being, you are in Adam. You descend from Adam and Eve. And it's not just an issue of genealogy. It's an issue of, of ancestry that he has passed along to you his sin. He's passed along to you his death. When Adam died, you died vicariously because you were in him. Death was not in the world, but through Adam's sin, death entered the world. And now it's passed down. Your children don't get a choice in this. You didn't get a choice into this. You were born into the world where you will die. Your children will be born into the world where they will die. You're passing along Adam's sin to them. What a contrast with Christ. In Christ, you have life. That life comes through his death. Adam's spiritual death brings spiritual death to you that will result in physical death, by the way. Christ's death, he dies with our sin given to him. He suffers in the cross bearing the penalty for our sin. He dies in our place. And so that through faith in him, you don't have spiritual death, but you have spiritual life. Because he died, he can give you spiritual life. Adam's death kills you spiritually. Christ's death makes you alive spiritually. And by the way, Adam's Death that he gives you is spiritual death that produces physical death. Jesus' death gives you spiritual life. And then when you die, he'll give you physical life as well. What a contrast. Death in Adam, life in Christ. Secondly, if a person's in Adam, they have the curses of Adam. But if a person's in Christ, they have the blessings of Christ. Do you remember that after Adam sinned, the Lord came to him and cursed him cursed the ground because of him that it would be difficult to work, cursed childbirth because of him that children would come into the world with pain, cursed life because of him that he will die from dust he was taken to dust he will return. Those are the curses that you will work hard, children will give you grief, and then you will die. <laughs> That's the world that we live in, isn't it? And those are the curses that come because of sin. That's what it means to be in Adam. Again, what a contrast with being in Christ. We don't have the curses of Adam in Christ. We have the blessings of Christ. We have the benefits, to use the phrase in verse 15, of being in Christ. That he died and rose again on, for our benefit, the ESV says, or on our behalf. We acquire blessings by being in Christ. We require curses by being in Adam. We require blessings by being in Christ. 
We have the indwelling of the Spirit, the fellowship and communion of the saints, the spiritual growth, the the relationship with God, the access to heaven through God. We have all of these innumerable spiritual blessings by being in Christ. We have none of those by being in Adam. Thirdly, when you're in Adam, the contrast here is that Adam was banished. But in Christ, you have God welcoming you. When Adam sinned, he received the curses and then he was sent out of the garden. Not allowed back. He lost Eden, sent to wander the world, to labor in the world, to turn the ground in the world with no way to get himself back to paradise. There was nothing Adam could do to regain his relationship with God. It was lost. He was banished, even more so in Cain, who is marked so that he could never get back. That's the condition of being in Adam, sent away from God. There's a separation. When someone is born into this world, spiritually dead, they do not have access to God. They're alienated from God because of their sin. In a sense, they're doubly alienated, aren't they? Because of Adam's sin and then because of their own. They don't have the kind of relationship with God that Adam did because of Adam's sin, but then they grow up and they sin all on their own. (laughs) You don't even need to teach your little kids how to lie. They'll figure it out just fine. (laughs) And so now they're separated from God because of their own sin. That's the banishment that comes by being in Adam. What a contrast with being in Christ where he welcomes you into his family, where his arms are open. He brings you in to glory with him. You're allowed access to God, not because of who you are, but because of who Jesus is and you're in him. You go into heaven because of Christ. You're welcomed in because of him. What a contrast. Banishment in Adam, welcoming in Christ. Finally, last contrast here. I mean, there's many more, but I just chose a few. Guilt versus forgiveness. When you're in Adam, you're declared guilty because of his sin. Again, you're doubly guilty. You're guilty because of Adam's sin and guilty because of your own. You stand under God's judgment and under God's banishment, under God's curses because of Adam's sin and then because of your own sin. It's not unjust that you're separated from God because your heart really does love sin. You really do practice sin. You really do, in that sense, when you're born in this world, walk in the darkness, not in the light. And so you have an actual guilt. So much so that when the Bible describes people going to hell, it never describes them as going to hell because of Adam's sin, does it? Not that I know of. It always describes you as going to sin, going to hell because of your own sin. And of course, your sin is in the likeness of Adam, but you do it on your own. You're actually guilty not just in a legal sense, but in an actual sense. You are guilty because of Adam's sin imputed and given to you. What a contrast with Christ, of course. Christ doesn't find you guilty and condemn you. As John says in John chapter 3, he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but the world might live through him. He gives forgiveness of sins. He takes away the penalty of God because he bears it in himself. It's not just that he, he bribes the judge to, or he bribes the guards to let you out of your jail cell or bribes the judge to strike the record clean. It's not just a presidential pardon that's happening here. No, it's an actual forgiveness because Jesus bears your actual punishment in the cross. And because your punishment is paid for, in him you're declared forgiven. Because Jesus is sinless and you're in Christ, Of course there's no sin in Christ. I mean, how could there be sin in Christ? Can you imagine anything more far-fetched? How could Christ have a taint of sin about him? And so if you are in Christ, of course you're forgiven of your sins. 
Whereas if you're in Adam, of course you're guilty. Of course you're guilty. So that's the pitch here. Paul's lining you up to see that there really only are two kinds of people. Do you understand? This chart lets you know more about somebody than what their job is and what college they went to and how they voted in the last election than, than what sports teams they like than if they make a six-figure salary or not and if they work in the, the White House or in the, the kitchen of a restaurant. This is more significant than any of those things. Oh, Verse 17 moves with more of a focus on what it means to be in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, we're going to leave Adam behind. Verse 17 leaves Adam behind, and now it's just going to focus on that second category, what it means to be in Christ. And this is just an astonishing picture of what it means to be in Christ. One of the most powerful verses of Scripture right here in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. The expression itself in Christ is such a strange expression, isn't it? It's used over a hundred times in the Bible to describe a believer. We're in a relationship with Christ, meaning we're in Christ. But it is a strange turn of phrase, you have to grant it. Would you ever use that about somebody else? And I keep talking about politics, but pretend that you uh, voted for President Trump. Would you describe yourself as being in Trump? Or you are a supporter of President Obama. Would you declare yourself for those eight years that you're in Obama? That doesn't even make any sense just grammatically. But you're in Christ. That's because it's a categorically different kind of relationship. We're not talking about the fleshly political alignments here. We're not talking about superficial endorsements of of platforms. We're talking about something that says more about you than even what football team you like. (laughs) I mean, you're not in any of those things. And yet you're in Christ. It's just a foundationally different kind of relationship. Not even the angels are in Christ. Did you notice that in Scripture? The angels are with Christ, but they're not in Him. And yet as a believer, you're described as being here in verse 17, in Christ. I mean, the only analogy I can think of is the cities of refuge in the Old Testament, where if somebody was uh, guilty of manslaughter, they could flee, and the avenger of blood would be pursuing them, and and rightfully so. In fact, the avenger of blood is required to pursue someone guilty of manslaughter to punish him for his sin. And yet if he fled, he could flee to a city of refuge, the guilty person. And he could enter the city of refuge, and if it was only manslaughter and not murder, he'd be received there. And they would let him cross the bridge and they would, they would close the door and he would have safety because he's in the city. His geographic sphere produces a spiritual safety for him. And that's what it means. That's the only analogy I can think of for being in Christ. That by coming to Christ, we've escaped the guilt that we had for being in Adam. Rightful guilt. We escape it because we're in Christ. And, and this description goes on. It gives you a couple indicators of what it means to be in Christ. First, it says that when you're in Christ, you're a new creation. When you're in Christ, you're a new creation, verse 17. The NAS says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. That word creature, it's the word for creation. It's the same concept. A creature just means someone who's created. But the idea here is that if you're in Christ, God has made something new. You're a new creation. The word new can be confusing in English, of course. There's a couple different ways to say it, an example, if I told you I got a new car, you might say, well, is it new or used? <laughs> I have a friend who's 
back in Los Angeles who's learning English as a second language and he said it's questions like that that just reveal to him that English is an impossible language. I got a new car. Oh really? Was it new or used? How does that make any sense? Well we understand how it makes sense because there's two categories of new. There's new chronologically like oh it's new to you. I got a new car. Yeah an 86 Corolla. Versus I got a brand new car. It's new not just by chronology, not just new to me, but it's new by quality. Well, Greek has two different words for that. And this is not the Greek word chronos, which would mean chronologically. This is the Greek word for fundamentally new. In other words, if anyone's in Christ, he's a brand new creation. God has made something new. You're not the old house that's refurbished with new siding and a new kitchen. No, you're the brand new creation. The old house was knocked down, the foundation was dug up, and there's a new creation made with new material. That's this image here. It's a fundamental inside-out new person that God makes when you're in Christ. How radical is this change? Well, it's life-altering, soul-reviving, and destiny-changing. That's what happens here when you're a new creation in Christ. God changes everything about you. It's so radical that the only way to describe it is to say that you're a new creation, that you've become a new person. Even that word creation, it's supposed to take you back in your mind to Genesis 1.1, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God is making something new in you when you come to faith in Christ. He makes a new you. You could say it that way. A new you, just like he made a new universe, he makes a new you. It was Spurgeon who said it was, actually much more difficult to create a new, a new Christian than it is to create a new universe. Because <laughs> the universe doesn't resist God, whereas people do. And yet when someone comes to Christ, God makes them new. God can do this. He can speak light into darkness. He can speak life into a dead soul. And that's what he does when a person comes to faith in Christ. They're a brand new creation. Secondly, they have an old death. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things passed away. And that phrase, passed away, it's a euphemism for death. That if someone comes to faith in Christ, the old life is gone, dead, buried. Their identity has changed. Now, the world doesn't see this. If you're a criminal, of course, and you get saved in jail, the, the judge or the bailiff or the guards don't just say, oh, since you're, since you're saved now, you're a new creation in Christ, you can go free for your crime. That was the old you that did it. The new you is welcome to walk free. The world doesn't see that. That's because the world judges according to fleshly standards, of course. But as far as God is concerned, your guilt is gone. The old you is dead. It doesn't make sense to, to sue it for damages. <laughs> it's dead and buried. The lust and pride that dominated, dominated your life before Christ is gone. Now, it's not, it's not vanished. You still carry about the, the old body with you, but it's defeated. Paul's language is that you carry about the body of death with you. You used to be owned by the body of death. You used to be the body of death. You used to be ruled by lust and by pride and by envy and greed. And when you come to faith in Christ, the power of those sins are broken. Yet they still loiter around. You still carry them around. You still battle with them. Nevertheless, it's right to say they've passed away. Your old values, your old goals, your old agendas, they're done. They're done. So I've heard people say they don't want to come to Christ because there's so many things in this world they love. They don't want to be a Christian because they want to do these things. They want to do those things. They want to, basically, they want to do these kind of sins. I want to sin in this way before I become a Christian. 
I want to experience what the world offers in this realm before I become a Christian. And they're afraid of losing those experiences if they become a Christian. But understand what the Bible says is when you become a Christian, those things, they pass away. It's not that you lost anything of value. It's that your values changed. And you've seen this in the, the fires recently in California. You've seen videos, I'm sure, of people having to evacuate their house. And it's, it's comical, I think, to see what some people are bringing with them when they evacuate their house. <laughs> They're cramming all sorts of random stuff in the back of their car. And I, I saw a video with a big screen TV hanging out the back of somebody's car as they're driving away. I guess you take what's important to you. <laughs> I had a friend who had to evacuate and asked him, what'd you bring? He's like, my kids. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and, and board shorts. They're going down to the beach. They spend the week at the beach. <laughs> we brought our swimsuits and the kids. That's it. You know, are you losing things of value? No, he's not losing anything of value. It's that his value has changed. What's in the car is what's important. What's in the house, not that important. That's what it's like when you come to Christ. It's not that those old things have even burned down. It's just that you don't value them anymore. Your heart has changed towards your old life. The things you used to aspire, the things that you once feared losing, well, something better has taken their place. It was Augustine who said, how sweet it uh, did all appear to me at once to be rid of those fruitless things, those fruitless things that I once so feared to lose. You drove them from me, you, and you took their place. You heard the true, the sweet, the pure, the sovereign joy. God eliminates those things from your life, not by burning them, but by changing your heart towards them. That's what it means when it says the old has passed away. You have a new creation, you have an old death, and thirdly, you have a new life. Behold, the new has come. The word behold just means, it could be better translated, get a load of this. <laughs> You're not going to believe this. The old has passed away, but check this out. <laughs> There's a new life there. Something better has grown up from the ground. From the ashes of the burned down house, something more beautiful is there. This is a change from the inside out. I'm sure many of you have seen the show Extreme Makeover where they take somebody and put them in isolation for a period of time and they bring them out of isolation after their weight loss program, a new wardrobe, a new haircut, a new hairstyle, a new makeup and all that. I'm like, oh, it's a brand new you. And the, everybody's like, oh. This is something even more fundamentally different than that. We're not talking about a weight loss program and a new hairstyle here. We're talking about Paul, uh, Paul ha describing God making something new inside of you changing your actual identity by changing your life. You become a new person on the inside. There's no other change like this in the world. Listen, drug users can go clean, right? Drunkards can go sober. Gluttons can slim down. Angry people can learn kindness. Bitter people can tame their tongue. Misers can become generous. But none of those are conversions. A person with cancer can be healed. A person with a wayward son can welcome his son home or with a difficult marriage, their marriage can be restored. But none of that is conversion. Even the little girl who died, that Jesus rose from the grave. That's not conversion. It's an actual resurrection, but it's not conversion. Understand the change that Paul describes here. It's more fundamental, more transformative than any of those things. It's not a drug user sobering up or a glutton slimming down. 
It's about Christ giving a new life in the heart. It's not healing, but it's redemption. It's not even a new start, but it's a new heart. It's got a change of address with it. The old house burned down. That was in Adam. You have a new address. You're now in Christ. That's how fundamental this is. You're right if you get the impression here that Paul is running out of ways to describe this. He's just, he's going for the biggest terms he can find. I mean, what bigger terms could he use to describe the change that happens when a person comes to faith in Christ? They don't get a new start. I mean, they are a new creation. It's as if everything in their history is done and they're starting over. Only now they're starting over in Christ. After all this, I fear I may have missed the most important word in the verse. The third word, therefore, if anyone is in Christ. Notice that this is a universal offer. This is a generic offer given to the world. There's no restrictions on this. And Paul is saying anybody can come to faith in Christ. This is an open-ended invitation. I hope that as you're listening to this description of what it means to be in Adam or in Christ, you should be asking yourself this very basic question. Have I experienced the kind of change that this verse describes? Have I been made into a new creation? Has my old passed away? Behold, is my new come? That should be the question you're asking about yourself. Have you experienced this change in your life? Paul is pausing here his defense of his ministry to the Corinthians, which is the point of this chapter. He's pausing it. And he's almost saying, let me talk to you as a pastor here. Have you come to Christ? Are you in Christ? Have you experienced this new creation? You can go to a car dealership and look at new cars. Yes, brand new cars. (laughs) And you can still drive away in your 86 Corolla in less you procured a new car for yourself. You can drive out to Dulles Airport, go through security, go to the window, and watch all these planes fly to faraway exotic locations. You can look at the board and see where they're all going. And yet, unless you actually get on one, you're just going to get back in your car and drive back to boring old Fairfax County. (laughs) In the same way, you can come to church every single Lord's Day And hear the gospel preached, hear the good news about Christ, and see all the other planes fly away, and you just get back in your car and go home. How sad that would be for you to see other people being in Christ, but not you. For you to see other people get this new creation, but not you. You could hear Christ preached every single Sunday and not be a Christian because you haven't received it for yourself. That's his point here, that you have to be in Christ. You have to receive this by faith. You have to exercise your faith believing in Christ. Without Christ, it's impossible to have eternal life. You know, it would be unfortunate to be in this world without money. It would be unlucky to be in this world without a job. It would be tragic to be in this world without a family. But those are nothing compared to being in this world without Christ. How do you receive Christ? By placing your faith in his death and his resurrection. And if you do that, if you give him your life, to use the language of verse 15, and you say, I'm no longer going to live for myself, 
I'm going to live for him who died and rose again on my behalf. Then you're in Christ. And the old will pass away. Behold, the new has come. Lord, we're thankful that you have open arms, not just for those who are in Christ, but for those who would come. I pray this morning there would be those here who have never given their life to you that they would in this very morning. And they would trust you for their salvation, that they would stop living for themselves and instead they would live for you. Lord, give them the faith to receive the new heart that you offer those who are in Christ. Let them no longer see so many others coming to faith. Let it be them this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.